Welcome once again to Watershed Writers, the radio documentary series and podcast that features writers creating literature in the Grand River region in southwestern Ontario. We read, we write, and we record on the traditional territories of the neutral Anishinaabe and Haudenosaunee peoples, and we are dedicating to bringing you stories about writers from diverse backgrounds. Our slogan is, Listen Local, Think Global. We are very happily partnered with Midtown Radio in Kitchener-Waterloo, where our episodes are aired every Sunday morning at 10 before we post them to SoundCloud for your listening pleasure and curiosity at any time. Listen live or listen later. Just listen. I am your host, Tannis McDonald, and this is Season 4 of Watershed Riders. Around here, the turning of the seasons feels significant. Like every year I've ever lived is speaking quietly in my ear with the fall of every leaf. We're well into autumn now with the passing of spooky season. I have picked the final bean in my 2023 garden and I'm getting out my turtlenecks and buckling down for the winter. It's a good time to get weird. And on this episode of Watershed Writers, we will talk with KW's premier writer of weird fiction, Sarah Tolney. Sarah is the author of eight books of fiction and four collections of poetry, including The Art of Dying, for which she was nominated for the Griffin Poetry Prize in 2019. And when I call her work weird fiction, it's not because I'm being rude but it's because that is Sarah's favorite phrase for what and how she writes. And she'll define the term for us as we talk. Her latest book is the short story collection, Sacraments for the Unfit, newly out with Aqueduct Press. And she is admirably prolific, producing the novellas The Fourth Island and All the Horses of Iceland in bursts of creativity that routinely stun me. In addition to being a weird fictionista, Sarah is a professor of medieval literature and creative writing at the University of Waterloo. She has the distinction of being the only writer I know who has had the supremely wonderful speculative fiction writer Ursula K. Le Guin blurb her book about Sarah's novel, The Stone Boatman, the divine Le Guin wrote, its strangeness fascinates, captivates, well... I get chills just thinking about it. Here's our conversation with Sarah. Welcome, Sarah Tolmey, to Watershed Writers. Hello, Tannis. I am pleased to be here. It's great to have you here. Last time I saw you in real life was at um, the extravaganza we call Waterloo Book Fest that takes place at the end of summer and beginning of autumn here in uh, Waterloo County every year. Well, every year starting with last year. So this is the second annual. I noted, because we were sharing a, a book table, that you were marketing your fiction as weird fiction, right? And um, I also noted that people really liked that and kept stopping by our uh, book table and saying, what is this weird fiction? Now, I was very impressed, A, <laughs> that as a, as a way to describe your books, because uh, that's definitely a way to yeah a way to talk about uh, your subject matter and how you work with it and i also liked it from a marketing point of view that everyone had to stop and ask 
So you had this great definition of weird fiction. Do you want to try it on yeah, our so listeners? The one that I have, uh, yes, developed for kind of blurbing purposes over the last several years is, it is naturalistic fiction that is about 13% off reality. And the whole designation weird fiction is a sort of troubled one. But it is the one I think finally it's the only kind of rubric and certainly the only marketing term that my work has ever really fit in successfully. And I've only just figured this out myself. A lot of what I write is very sort of straightforwardly, fairly deeply researched, historically based fiction or near future satire. Things behave quite normally and are described in a fairly matter-of-fact, deadpan, realistic style. And yet just one or two odd features or weird features will intrude. And there is a sort of persistence of inexplicable mystery that tends to occur. And so, I mean, I have gradually learned to contextualize all of my very disparate work together under that heading because it is the only one that fits. And if anybody asks you, what kind of work do you produce? I have now learned to say weird fiction. Uh, that is comparatively recent. I think I've got that narrative together perhaps in the last two years. I like that it's 13% strangeness. Yes, yes. It seemed like a good number. Yeah, indeed. And I'm interested in the fact that this is fairly new for you, not as uh, the way you write, but as the way you talk about your work. And I know often on this podcast that we talk about sort of ways to push back against marketing impulses that seem to be rigid, you know, around yes. uh, all kinds of work. And, and it seems that this is your strategy for, for that kind of resistance. It is. I just actually read a, a wonderful collection of assorted essays by Ursula Le Guin, uh, which came out in 2016, I think, actually, and it's called Words Are My Matter. It's from uh, assorted things from her blog, assorted book reviews, and some introductions to uh, edited collections and some things that she has sort of been the, you know, the celebrity writer who writes the intro for, all of which were extremely interesting. And she talks about this problem at length, the sort of you know, terminal grip of marketing terminology that we are all now stuck with as professional writers of any kind. Amazon categories are simply the ones that prevail. And if you cannot figure out where your work fits in those quite, I think, uh, cripplingly close coupled marketing categories, yes, this is lesbian, vampire, YA fiction. This is what, you know, they're parsed down very minutely. And if your work crosses those boundaries, it becomes practically unsaleable. Wow. It's a depressing scenario that we all have to cope with right now, I think. Yeah. I mean, and I think it's fair that readers want what they like. Like yes. maybe they yeah. do want. And should be able to find it. Yeah. yeah. But also there needs to be more broadening of such categories too, because a lot of people like things that are that have all kinds of hybridity in genre, right? Exactly. I mean, I would be fine with this kind of endless uh, proliferation of marketing terms if you were given five or six of them and there was a sort of Venn diagram mm. <laughs> in which here are 15 different ways or five different ways in which this work might be understood. You know, that actually would make perfectly good sense to me. But trying to cram it under one single heading, whatever that be, simply means, at least in my case, 
that, you know, three quarters of the dimension of what any given work is not being addressed by, you know, XYZ marketing term. Even speculative fiction, which is the one that I had hit upon before, doesn't fully convey it because, of course, that, I mean, that is an exceedingly broad term. And it is hung up in various, I think, snob polarities that I, I'm not sure that I necessarily want to be part of anymore. So I have settled on weird and that works for me. And I feel it's fairly flexible. I, well, I love it. And clearly um, other people were intrigued by it. And I think we had a whole lot of people sort of coming in and identifying as weird readers, right? And that was yeah. that was great. Now you've noted before to me that you don't publish much with Canadian publishers, uh, particularly your fiction, that your poetry has been uh, published by Canadian uh, presses. Does this give you a different perspective on how your books are marketed and, and received, having uh, like American publishers for this weird fiction? It is certainly not unusual in the Canadian landscape for people to write both poetry and fiction. It actually, I would say, is a is this a sort of a, a strong point in the Canadian writing world uh, quite often. But it is usually the case that if they, people who write, you know, kind of write with both hands is how I often say it, both of those forms are accommodated in the Canadian press landscape. And mine is not. I have never published any fiction here except occasionally in magazines. My small press that publishes my more non-standard fiction is Aqueduct, and they are based in Seattle. And it was actually Ursula Le Guin who really put me on to them, bless her heart, and kind of connected me with them. And they have been absolutely wonderful. They are incredibly professional. What the quality of the stuff that they publish is unbelievably high. And it's extremely diverse and interesting to the last book. I mean, I've never found a book of theirs that I am not actually actively interested to read from the get-go. So they're wonderful. Uh, but, you know, it's a tiny operation, tiny market share. Uh, and then just laterally since 2019, I've been publishing with Tor.com, who have a novella series. So they're an, they're an imprint of Macmillan. So uh, as a fiction writer, I am in the American marketplace, uh, by and large. And yet as a poet, I publish mostly thus far with McGill Queens. So I have two very separate lives. And I mean, you as a poet and fiction writer yourself, are, I'm sure you're very familiar with this problem that the, the poetry people and the prose people do not necessarily speak. There is not always a lot of overlap in the readership or in the, in the, in the critical reception either. And once you add a, a border crossing into that as well, it makes it all that much more awkward, interestingly. Yeah, that's intriguing. And I, you know, I know lots of be beginner writers ask me, you know, how do I get into those big American markets? And, you know, I don't have much advice for them because I don't, I don't publish in those big American markets either, right? I publish in small American markets. I mean, is what it, to a large extent come. I mean, a small press there is, is still a small press, you know. But trying to get your work, for example, reviewed here, if you publish with a smaller U.S. press, is practically impossible. None of my fiction has ever been reviewed in Canada that I have seen. Oh, really? That's an yeah. interesting distinction for sure. I am interested, you just started to talk about the novella. I'm interested in these two things that seem to sort of underlie a, a lot of your, your fiction work, besides being weird, is this idea that you have figured out a kind of way to write that most interesting of things, the novella, 
So a, a work of fiction that is longer than a short story and shorter than a novel and seems to me to have so much potential. And that, and I'm, I'm also interested in the way you've been frank about the ways in which your experience as a, a medieval literature specialist uh, supports your writing of weird fiction. And I, I want to know, is that because history itself is the weirdest? There are a few things weirder than those things which have actually happened. That <laughs> is the case. But I think it's also the case that, well, A, I'm, fu I'm fundamentally a Middle English scholar. And Middle English is a period of English which is very rich and strange. I think it's one of the most interesting and colorful periods of English, actually. It is the most obviously creolized uh, I think, period of English in many respects, because, you know, bits of its Latin heritage and bits of its French heritage, and of course, a large part of its fundamentally Germanic heritage are all quite visible and mixed together in really quite wonky ways. So you see this language that is on the cusp of its great international breakout that it makes in the basically the subsequent centuries, the Renaissance. You see this funky insular language there is nothing like it really now except the possibly if you've ever read or seen any dutch it gives you a vibe that is somewhat like that it is like dutch with more french vocabulary i mean interestingly the mennonite local mennonite language here uh, is not all that different and possibly bits of Danish. <laughs> but anyway, um, you know, so just linguistically, it's very rich and strange. And to me, often comical and yet touching. English in that period is so hybridized that it still feels small. It is very much a language feeling its way forward, simplifying its grammar down, trying to assimilate many, many different impulses from many different language directions. So that has always been part of the way in which I read, just that sheer linguistic mashup quality of Middle English. Um, and that is very much the way I see language of all kinds, I think. And it's also the case that medieval genres are utterly different from ours. And I think that too has informed just the way I produce narratives and of course, it tends to result in the fact that the narratives I produce don't necessarily gel too perfectly with the existing heavily novelistic genre formations that we now have. So it also contributes to weirdness in that respect. You know, I, I often discuss this with uh, my students, particularly of fiction students. And I and you know, have to say, you know, the novel, as we understand it, is a very young genre. You know, it had its yes. rise in the 18th century. And they, yeah. they, of course, think that's old anyway. But I'm, yeah, yeah. But, but poetry and and saga narratives, those are our ancient forms, right? Our yes, very ancient exactly. forms. And drama, of course. Don't want to leave that out. Yes, and drama. Yeah. But I, I think that's a, that's a fascinating idea of, about language being on the cusp. And your point about Plout Deitch, I think, is interesting as well. Uh, so the, the Mennonite uh, often not thought of as, as low German, but it, uh, known as Plautich, because, of course, it's an, very much an oral tradition. It's an oral language and the mm -hmm. written language is, is high German and not really the same language at all. Yeah. And it's a language that doesn't actually conform particularly well to anything like national boundaries as they currently stand. Right. 
more, or indeed to religious ones. <laughs> so in that respect, it, you know, it, it, there is a certain weird energy that it exerted on the literature of the region. Yeah, yeah. And it's subversive. It's always subversive in its own utterance, right? Okay. I want to ask a little bit about where you're from originally, and I think I'm I'm hearing some of your studying in the UK and what you what you said about uh, about medieval literatures, about Middle English. And I know that people arrive in in Waterloo County uh, in a variety of ways. So I know you mm -hmm. studied in the UK, uh, and where are you from before that? I was actually born in Ottawa, but I left it when I was about four. And then my family did a very brief cross-country trip and lived on the West Coast for two years, perhaps three, which I scarcely remember. And then they moved back to the sort of ancestral homeland of my both my parents, who are Nova Scotians. So I actually grew up in my elementary school, middle school years in several different towns in Nova Scotia. So first in Bridgetown in the Annapolis Valley, which is a tiny village which also had a sub-village right outside it, one of the, the relatively rare remaining Black villages, right? Paradise was right outside. Oh. Um, so it was a sort of dual community. And then Wolfville, where Acadia was, where my mom worked as a librarian for some time. And then she moved as a, again, as a librarian to Dalhousie. So we moved to Halifax. So I went through a graduating series of slightly larger to larger to larger <laughs> towns in Nova Scotia. And then we moved to Toronto when I was in, let me think now, uh, grade eight, I think. So I did my undergraduate training in the lot and my high school in Toronto, did the MA in medieval studies there, and then went to Cambridge. So thereafter, I had a very short sojourn, I guess, two years where I taught on contract at Harvard and then ended up, thank heavens, in 2000, getting my job at the University of Waterloo, which is what brought, you know, me and my family to the region. And we're very glad. We're very glad to have you here. I think it's time to stop talking about the work and to actually hear uh, a sample of it. Can you uh, can you read from something for us? Yes, I remember that you expressed a lot of enthusiasm, for which I thank you, for a two novella collection. I think really it's a novelette plus novella collection that came out way back uh, in 2016. So it is called Two Travelers. And the second longer tale in it is called The Burning the Furrows, which is, I think, um, the only sort of adventure story, you know, uh, of the kind of Scarlet Pimpernel kind uh, that I've probably ever really um, succeeded in writing. And it has within it a ritual Rituals are very, very important to me. Uh, I think this is one of the things I always loved as a medievalist. I have never written anything that is not deeply about human rituals at one level or another. In this one, there is a, a community who are known locally as cavers who have a ritual in which all of the members of the community have a small written talisman that has their name on it. All of these talismans are ground down to powder and seeded in the earth every year in the autumn. And the powder is lit alight. And in the ground, all of those name tags are reforged, apparently by the earth itself or the planet itself. And they come out slightly changed. The entirety of all of those little uh, name uh, tags or plaques they're called stitin in the in the book, constitute the total name of the people, which is ever-changing. 
on a you know a dynamic basis that records the births and the deaths and the marriages by these changes in the locations of the word breaks, we might say. So that ritual came to me sort of all of a piece. And indeed, I, I had a, a vision of it, as I quite often do with these weird fictions, of the actual burning of the furrows from a slightly elevated height, you know, in the darkness kind of thing. So I, I just thought I would maybe read the description of the first time we see that ritual. Here it is. It is the deep dark of night, and we are burning the furrows. It is freezing as usual. One good thing about being pregnant is that I feel it less. I run a bit hotter now. We are all here. My father and mother, Stith, me, Hisi, Afa, little Una. I can hear poor Una's teeth chattering from here. Her mother had to carry her all the way out here from the wagon. She's only five but already tall, so I bet it was no joke. I can sort of remember what the burning was like at her age. I mean, not right back to the age of three the first time, but around five or six. The incredible sight of the ground on fire. The weird, achy feeling of being without my stitten. Being very tired and wearing tons of clothes and itchy mittens. Staying up late. All of us together, we are the third line. I am the dreamer of the dream. My father, Ayot, is the head of the line, the first word, I am, Kelia, the fourth word, dreamer. Each one of our people is a word in the poem of all, each family a line. The poem tells the story of who we are and where we came from, from the south to the north, from mines to open fields, from war to peace. So the elders are endlessly dunning into our heads. Not that a life in Denison is particularly peaceful. Here we may not be slaves, like the elders say we used to be 400 years ago, but we are certainly servants. Most Denesians despise us. I doubt that any Denesian has ever seen what I am seeing, the burning of the furrows, the ritual that makes each one of us who we are year after year. They grow crops in this ground out in the middle of the eastern grainlands. We harvest our own names. It always makes me solemn and proud to see it. The elders say, this is the night that the world remembers. What does it remember? Us. All across this cold, windswept field, the families of are lined up row after row, 36 lines. I can only see the nearest ones, maybe 10 lines or so. It is so dark. In front of each line is a row of fire, a furrow of low, bluish flame. The earth itself is burning. The smell is smoky and sharp not like burning wood or peat. It smells kind of chemical or metallic, the way I imagine gunpowder to smell. Perhaps it is gunpowder that they use in the right, the burning powder that they mix in. It has to be something like that, something strong. I mean, how else would they get dirt and metal to burn? It's not just old corn stalks burning in that ground. It is our stitten. They are made of iron, not very elegant as amulets go, mostly worn-looking and grayish-black, triangular, pierced in the middle. Mostly we keep them hidden on chains around our necks, under our clothes. It's creepy having them exposed, and it makes you cold. Every stitten is different. Each one is the name of its bearer. I was going to say owner, but you don't really own a stitten. It might even own you. It is you. Unlike you, it changes from year to year. Or it can. Mine won't change this year. Nothing has changed in our line. No one born, no one died, 
Last time mine changed was three years ago when Una came for the first time and received her stitten. So the words reshuffled. Our language is not like English or Denesian. The words are more alive. The words the elders used to describe it is motile. They can shift around amazingly and still bear the same meaning line after line. But I'm not enough of a linguist to explain it. But even a very small fraction of a word carries meaning. Our line stretches over seven people right now, but it could fit 20 or two. The names would be shorter or longer, yet no two would ever be the same. You can't be the same person as somebody else. That's ridiculous. Thank you for that. I really love Two Travelers. I think it's it's an amazing book. And uh, you were calling it uh, a, a novella combined with a novelette, which I think is a, an intriguing description. And I think this is a book that should be made into a movie, quite frankly, because I think it has everything, you know, romance, intrigue, spying, time travel, human migration, the need to begin from scratch, learning a new language the preservation of a culture and just the very, very big question that you return to, particularly in the passage that you read about being and belonging with some very difficult answers and non-answers as well. Well, I mean, I think there is a temptation, which is long running in all fantastic literature, especially since Tolkien, to fetishize the organic society, to imagine some sort of, as it were, primitive or earlier or pre-industrial culture as having these intrinsic advantages um, as against our own modern alienated technotronic world. There's a coziness factor. <laughs> and all of this does have real emotional appeal, and I would never deny it. But there are also some serious problems with that romantic view. In this one, we see that ritual is, of course, profoundly empowering for those individuals. It is actually a thing that they have brought as a migrant people from a southern realm into a northern realm, and they are living as a sort of subject people, honestly, as a kind of servant class people in a sort of, let's say, roughly 18th century or Baroque kind of cultural landscape that's sort of loosely based on Denmark at the turn of that century. So it's called Denison from Isaac Denison, who is a, a huge hero of mine. So those people have that ritual, which bonds them profoundly and yet dynamically together, but it is also deeply constraining, right? So there is always uh, a tension between freedom and constraint and between identity and control that is imposed by rituals. And here, indeed, it is one that goes so deep that it, you know, it appears to be molecular. Yes. And I think there's also something going on there between what is considered traditional and what is considered contemporary. And there's our, mm -hmm. our time travel moment because this family, it's not a spoiler to say this family has to live in, in two different times, right? And that's, that's part yes. of the constraint, right? That in order to have a contemporary life, they must also have this traditional life as well by kind of a time travel and or planetary uh, travel that it's you know hard to distinguish between here. Yes. It's not a distinction I even make. They yes. just go to completely different cultural and emotional places. So both stories in that collection are so-called portal fictions. 
And that does, again, here's another marketing term, and it is one that I think works very well for those books. And they are the, it's the only time I ever did that, where you take a protagonist from a technotronic world and you interject them against their will and utterly having nothing to do with their decision into a completely different and seemingly earlier version of historical experience. You know, it's a one-way trip for the woman in the dance on the stairs who finds herself quite suddenly ripped out of her technotronic world like ours. It's a little bit uh, further on in terms of, uh, you know, deforestation and environmental collapse than this one. But she ends up in, uh, again, a sort of 18th century, very complicated, hierarchized, courtly world, which is at once a world and a kind of hive. And she has to negotiate a place for herself there, not speaking the language, not being in any way certain, indeed, whether she'll even remain. She doesn't know how she got there, and she might perhaps suddenly disappear, although she doesn't, as far as I know. And she has to call upon the resources of her childhood experience as a dancer, because the culture uses dance very powerfully as a form of communication, and she finds it easier and more uh, exact to learn that than the spoken language. So that's her problem, <laughs> you know. And then the character in Burning Furrow switches back and forth between you know, a, a sort of a world that is, to some extent, it, it's an urban space, probably in the northern USA or Canada in, I thought, I'm guessing, around the year 2000, <laughs> uh, you know, and gets transported back and forth from that place to the realm in which, the realm that they actually come from, which is the, this realm of Denison, uh, which is, as I say, roughly 18th century in its kind of state of development. And that happens multiple times, very little warning, and not as a result of conscious decision. So it's about people coping with being thrown into these situations. Yeah, you know, and, and that's interesting because, of course, we've got our 13% weirdness there. And then, of course, everyone has relationships. They have marriages and, and children yeah. and jobs and everything else that has to go on with these more fantastical elements as well. Yeah. Now, I wanted to note that your 2022 book, All the Horses of Iceland, uh, made it onto the New York Times list of best science fiction and fantasy that year. And uh, that's a nice boost. New York Times bestselling author. Yes, indeed. And it too is based on some of your extensions of medieval texts and histories, particularly histories of Asia, right? For this kind of origin story of all the horses in Iceland. Do you want to say a little something about that? It actually came about, I went to a writer's conference in Reykjavik back in, I'm thinking, 2017. And had a wonderful time and saw that superb and interesting and just like nowhere else landscape, this kind of lunar landscape that uh, that Iceland can provide. I have, as a medievalist, read quite a lot of the saga literature, although always in translation. I don't actually read Old Norse myself, so that is not really my period per se, but you can't argue with the magnificence and just compelling interest of the family sagas and the far traveler tales and the whole lot of them. So I do know them reasonably well. And then some years after my little trip to Iceland, I was watching a documentary about Icelandic horses because I've always been a horse person. And it just simply mentioned somewhere along the line that genetically it is pretty clear that those horses did in fact come from the Central Asian steppe, that they are closely related 
to various other kinds of small northern horses that definitely did originate way out there in Mongolia. And I thought, oh my God, you know, what a story. I have to write that story and it has to be a saga. So that is actually what I did. It is a fairly conscious imitation of that form, which is not a novel. In a, in a novel, of course, a historical fiction novel, that story would have had to be twice the length. And it would have been filled with researchy details about, uh, you know, the flora and the fauna and, uh, you know, a whole lot of stuff about political hierarchies that you pass through and some stuff about, you know, linguistic history. And, you know, it would have had a lot of info dumping. And sagas do not do that. The saga is about going away from Iceland, that small, isolated community, and its most unusual distinct language, going out into the world and trading or Viking, usually trading, and getting through that business and describing it in very prosaic ways, and then coming home. In a saga, it will say, next year, he came back from XYZ. And that whole year is elided, and we do not get a whole lot of blow-by-blow description. It centers very much on the emotional experience of its protagonists, on their practical business, right? That's the great thing about Norse sagas is they are incredibly practical and all the magic and ritual that they contain, which is everywhere, it is saturated, is also treated with this completely prosaic, this is what happened, deadpan kind of style. So it is that I have tried to imitate stylistically this kind of laconic, tough-minded, practical style that they contain, which at the same time admits of ghosts, even ghosts who can beat you up, and the possibility that in your trade, you might accidentally find yourself purchasing or being given as a gift a horse who contains the spirit of a woman and bringing her back to Iceland. She is the mother of all horses, the mare with no name. We're taking a brief break from our conversation with Sarah Tolmy to remind you of another literary event coming up in the Grand River region. The reading series at St. Jerome's College at the University of Waterloo hosts several writers per year. And coming up soon is a reading with Bernadette Rule, the creative nonfiction writer and poet. If you've never been to this reading series, well, I recommend it. Everyone is welcome and the events are free to attend. So consider going to see Bernadette Rule on November 17th at 4.30 with the reading series at St. Jerome's College, University of Waterloo. Go to the second floor of St. Jerome's College, room 1002. Now back to our conversation with Sarah Tolmy. I feel like I did get the tone that I wanted in that book. And I think that is why it has found its audience. I really love that explanation of how the saga has informed this and... Thanks for that. I feel like I'm getting a novella writing lesson. And part of it <laughs> is to find other forms that resist info dumping, that just let people sort of leap into the magic or leap into the story without a lot of leading them forward into it, that they trust the genre or they trust the tone. Story. I think that's it. It's trust the genre and trust the tone. And I do think that is a really key difference. Now, I've always been an admirer of historical fiction. I Certainly as an adolescent, I read a lot of it. You know, I read a lot of 
fantasy and sci-fi, and I read a lot of classic novels. I was definitely a historical fiction fan. And books like Kristen Lavern's Daughter were absolutely key <laughs> to my reading as an adolescent. Now, that book is a magnificent piece of work of, of tone. There is no anachronism. It is perfectly observed. And it reads as a completely different world for that reason, right? A world which is, to us, fantastic. And that is the kind of thing that I wanted to capture here, but not by dint of writing a traditional novel, as she definitely did, uh, but by really trying to write a saga with its tone and with its entailments, with indeed the weird admixture of the very straightforward and prosaic, and it's all about making the money. Like, really, that is what the sagas are about. They're about making the money and taking it back to the North, where you don't have enough stuff. And yet utterly fantastical to us, things happen seamlessly mixed in. I love that. I love that. And I, and I think we see that too, in a different way, in your novella, The Fourth Island. And mm -hmm. we switch there to a completely different island with a different culture. But it reads to me, because it's, a, it's an island off of Ireland, an imaginary island off of Ireland. And it reads to me like a Celtic wonder tale. I'm reading it as a way that you had picked up a particular genre and again, ran with the parameters of the genre and the freedoms of that particular genre. Is that, is that safe to say? I think that's exactly right. Um, and I very much was thinking of oral tradition wonder tales when I wrote that story. And again, there is the voice to that story that to me sounds in my head uh, like an Irish grandmother. You know, it does have an Irish accent and I think it is feminine. It might possibly, I think you could also be told by a sort of male shanaki, you know, kind of thing that would probably work as well. But it is supposed to have that rather mythic tale telling quality, which at the same time is also extremely down to earth, you know, very much about day to day experience and raising sheep and, you know, sailing in tiny, tippy little boats. So it, too, is about a, a very seamless and unapologetic admixture of fantastic and prosaic elements, which indeed, I think, is really the experience of reading all early literature. It is, to me, that that's the sort of generic and intellectual stomping ground that I have as a reader of early lit in general. And I definitely, I think I'm, I am bringing that forward. Yeah, to me, The Fourth Island was like a story you would hear around a peat fire. You're staying somewhere for three nights and your host tells you this story over three nights. And it was, yeah, it was very familiar to me from lots of my childhood reading around Scottish and Irish folktales, for sure. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And again, that that idea that, you know, you just accept that there's a magical world and then don't <laughs> then you don't have to explain it. You don't have yes, to explain uh, what a banshee does or why there's a bogey or why, you know, it's just. Yes, exactly. It happens. Yeah. Right. Yes. Oh, yeah, totally. OK, I think it's time to hear a little more from you, a little a uh, little more reading. I thought I might read one short story from my 2020 book called Disease, which I know Ooh. you've, again, also read. This book is one of my present or near future satire books, uh, like my 2014 book, No Food. And to some extent, like my present just newly out book, Sacraments for the Unfit, which we'll probably talk about in a uh, later. But Disease came out in 2020. 
it came out in the COVID years and you would think that it is a COVID book. But in fact, it, this book actually took me 15 years to write. Um, I actually started working on some of the stories in disease when I was writing my very first book, The Stone Boatman. So stories in it go back before 2010, probably to 2008 or so. I started writing these little micro stories of individual diseases, very straightforwardly and factually explained, but all of the diseases are imaginary or abstract. There is this sort of tradition of doing this, things like um, Ambrose Bierce's The Devil's Dictionary. I think of this book in many respects as a kind of extension of medieval personification allegory. And their physical bodies take on and express somatically as sicknesses, <laughs> things like privacy or innovation or involuntary compassion. Somebody develops an allergy to tourists. So they are all short shorts, you know, micro fictions, usually kind of four to five pages describing and categorizing these imaginary diseases. So I'll, I'll read you this one. It's from a section called Diseases of Abandonment. There are various different headings and disease etiologies in the book. So this is the first disease of abandonment, and it's called Acquired Former Expertise. Recently, there has been an outbreak of AFE, Acquired Former Expertise. It is one of those rare diseases that spreads only from children to adults. For the time being, we warn adults who might feel that they are susceptible, uh, though self-assessment is challenging, to stay away from public areas in which adolescent competitions have taken place. We believe the present time that AFE may be a blood-borne illness, as minute traces of blood often remains at sites of culminating competitions between young people, whether athletic or artistic. Elevated adrenaline levels among participants mean that they often fail to notice minor injuries. Prognosis of this disease is uncertain, though the reported cases have tended to be temporary, manifesting fully anywhere from a few hours to several weeks. Care must be taken, however, to avoid reinfection from particularly contaminated sites. High school auditoriums, hotel lobbies in the Niagara Falls area, anywhere that has hosted a Kiwanis festival, and the like, as infections do not appear to confer immunity. A PSA is in preparation currently and will be posted at such high-risk sites as soon as possible. Below are several anonymized cases of the disease, which is various in its presentation. Adults with cognate symptoms are encouraged to proceed to the nearest emergency department, as in extreme cases they may require sedation. A note to physicians. Several false cases have been reported in which the adult in question, manifesting a sudden and shocking ability, is found not to have AFE, but instead to have reacquired occulted childhood expertise of his or her own, often buried by trauma. Such patients will require alternative therapy. Case A. Patient F, a 46-year-old woman with moderate clinical obesity and arthrosclerosis, and with no previous history of dance, found herself initially afflicted by postural changes in an elevator, heading down to the lobby of a Niagara Falls hotel, appended to which was a hall that hosted regular children's dance competitions. This manifested initially as a strong lateral turnout from the hip and a fixed smile. As she exited the elevator, it rapidly scaled up into a series of fuetes, which caused her to drop the small dog she was carrying. Then, despite being entangled in the leash, 
She executed three jetés with commendable extension across the lobby, dragging the unfortunate animal along with her, before collapsing in pain and shock on the far side, where she was assisted by onlookers, many of whom were applauding. The dog, traumatized by near strangulation, was subsequently destroyed. Patient N, a 50-year-old man of Dominican heritage, with no cultural exposure to the art of yodeling, sitting at an arena watching a hockey game, suddenly found himself, instead of the customary yelling and swearing, emitting long articulated shrieks in E, which were soon identified by other patrons to be yodels. He was unable to thank them or to speak at all at the time, as ever more complex ululations burst uncontrollably from his mouth. He fled his seat and the building and found to his relief that the yodels diminished and finally ceased approximately halfway across the parking lot. The arena was found to have recently hosted the Southwestern Ontario Junior Yodeling Finals. Patient N, an avid hockey fan and supporter of his local club, was forced to give up his season tickets to the venue. Thank you so much. I've been trying not to laugh throughout. So um, this is a book that is just full of these both horrible and funny diseases. Well, that if it was actually happening to you, it would be terrible. But because we're hearing about it, it's grotesquely funny, right? The outbreak of yodeling and the outbreak of dancing. And and I know there are others. There's a, there's a man who's allergic to comedy and certainly several diseases of uh, what you call diseases of information, but they're also uh, strange uh, speechifying impediments, including, and I want to quote from one here myself. This is in Diseases of Information. It's a disease of utterance. By the age of 20, Agatha is now 24. Agatha's utterance, spoken or written, has achieved a degree of ambiguity unparalleled by Zen Cohn's concrete poetry or Sino-American package directions. Poets consulted have called her sentences marvels of lyric compression. Sociolinguists have labeled them idiopathic code switching. So I loved that because uh, the the levels of incomprehension I thought were hilarious. <laughs> and also, I feel like I know people who maybe don't talk like that, but, you know, slip into it on occasion. And I think mm -hmm. if you're a poet, you probably know all kinds of people who talk like that. Yes. That was just me having fun reading, uh, reading your work. But I'm interested in this, particularly in how these seem to touch on contemporary estrangement or contemporary cultures uh, that have gone mad in someone's body. So mm -hmm. I mentioned earlier that these are part of what we assume, or these are actual uh, conditions that live in actual human bodies and manifest in particular ways in our culture. Can you talk about that level of satire about what you were yes. pointing to for some of yeah. these? For example, I mean, the condition of tragedy is the condition in which the protagonist embodies something that the culture values highly, values extremely, you know, Hamlet's willingness to take direction from his counsel, whatever it may be, right? You are supposed to embody a culturally valuable strength, which destroys you, right? That is the perverse and terrible thing that happens in tragedy. And in some respects, not everybody in this book, but many of them exhibit in and of themselves things that our culture today strongly values, and yet it actually destroys their quality of life and they have to come up with some kind of precarious balance about it. So for example, this one fellow who suffers from what it turns out to be terminal innovation, 
Now, I, at the University of Waterloo, I'm thoroughly tired of the word innovation. It is on all of our branding all of the time and has been so overused as to nearly become meaningless. But we all know that it is something that we culturally value in our day and age. But this poor fellow begins to be, in fact, so innovative in his just personal bodily routines that he cannot brush his teeth. He sets out to brush his teeth and ends up smearing the stuff all over his face and then scrubbing the wall with his toothbrush, right? He tries to get into a taxi and finds himself buried under three feet of trash in a nearby dumpster. He loses control of his bodily routines. This would be terrifying, but it would also be comical from the perspective of an outsider. And it, again, it problematizes this fetish that we have with innovation, which in fact does have its limits, right? And this is what happens when you get up close to them personally. So it's that kind of thing that happens time and time again to people in this book. They are experiencing tragedy just locally in their flesh in many respects. That's fascinating, fantastically humorous book that is also horrifying in, in many ways, right? Yeah, my friend said um, it was it inspired horrified laughter, which is exactly what I was going for. I also wanted to, to talk a little bit about, we might call it more traditional uh, horror in uh, Sacraments for the Unfit, which is your most recent short story collection. You said it's it was uh, a kind of unexpected arrival as a book that it it's what you did write over uh, the last couple of years of of COVID restrictions. What did you find surprising about this book as opposed to your other writing projects? Well, it, it came from two very distinct directions. Actually, one of them was your book Straggle, um, which was a, a very very strong underlying impetus to this book. And he had actually given me a copy of it. And I, I didn't read it right away. Right? And I ended up reading it over the COVID period. I have a very adversarial relationship, in fact, a lot of the time to memoir. I find them often desperately unfunny and self-justifying and various things. But this was completely not that. It was highly funny, and yet extremely raw and bare. It was uh, one of the most uh, powerful memoirs I have ever read. And it was also powerfully contemporary. So I had read that and it was in my mind. And then quite suddenly out of the blue, my friend Helen Marshall, who is also a medievalist and a weird fiction writer, called upon me to read uh, in, in order to blurb her new collection, which is called The Gold Leaf Executions. And it also, it, it actually just came out in 2023. It was slightly delayed. Uh, it's a superb and very interesting collection. Quite long, a big, rich book of good 25 stories. And again, most of the stories were set in the contemporary world. And several of them had protagonists who were, in one way or another, clearly related to Helen's own subject position. They were sort of scholarly, nerdy, uh, you know, medievalist people going through their lives, attending conferences, doing this and that. And then they would be overtaken by some sort of weird event or revelation. In fact, there's a, a, a history of weird tales going back to, you know, writers like Algernon Blackwood, who's a favorite of mine, who do that kind of thing. And it had never occurred to me to just allow myself to do that. Almost everything I've ever written, except poetry, has been 
severely backdated, right? Put put into a remote period of history mm-hmm. because I'm interested in developmental problems of the West, we might say. And I just never thought of myself as being able or willing to write a story or many stories that were now, that were just simply now. In response to those two books, in some strange combination in my head, I just started writing these stories over the the pandemic 18 months. And they came very quickly once they sort of began to roll out. They're quite diverse. Several of them are getting up almost to that novelette length of, of The Dancer on the Stairs. And then several are quite short and crisp much closer to the ones in disease. So it's a it's a more stylistically diverse, I think, book. But all of them are about individual persons. There is, in fact, two narrators in two separate stories who are basically me. <laughs> you know, and I've never allowed myself to do that before. And yet there's another one who is a, a kind of newly out of work angel. Again, a, a kind of newly out of work God. And there's a story in which Ludwig Wittgenstein, who is a man I've always admired and I've read his work religiously since I was sort of, a, you know, in my 20s. So uh, in the final story of that book, which is called The Wittgenstein Finds, he starts to send up symbolic objects out of his grave, uh, silver, gilt, uh, menorah, various other items, which are then received by the scholarly community and debated about intensely in various different scholarly languages and whatever. So it's a kind of academic satire, but, you know, it is also about this very deadpan description of an impossible event. That's the the concluding story in that book. I'm going to read uh, from a tale in the middle of the book called The God That Got Away. Deus absconditus. That's what they said. It's colossally unfair. I did not abscond. Moreover, with that verb, there is always a hint of impropriety. The chimney sweep absconded with the poker. The vicar absconded with the silver. What am I supposed to have absconded with? People's belief? So I'm a belief thief now. I suppose so, if I've departed and they're still believing. It is the business of gods to propagate belief and to be the objects of belief. This is the name of the game. The purpose of a god is to be believed in. This seems like a fairly long term, and if, as Luther and Pascal and so on would have it, the god who absconded in the 16th century was the only one remaining and was therefore, in principle, the necessary object of everyone's belief, presumably that universal belief departed with said god as a kind of attachment. Belief, I'd like to think, would tend to inhere in a god. Yet, at the same time, of course, perversely, it must also remain with the believers, for how else would they be believers? Being thus in two places at once, I suppose belief must be described as an entanglement. This may be the kind of thing that is easier to explain in German, which uses the same verb for to borrow and to lend. thought I would just leave you with that opening paragraph of the God who got away. I love this God who got away, like the recently unemployed God. Um, So I like that your opposite numbers here are unemployed gods and angels and a slightly fictionalized version of yourself in this book. I wanted to ask you something that is in uh, the short story, The Hand of M.R. James, in which part of what you parse in the story is a writing process. 
note-taking in a bound book so that all of your thoughts remain written down and the path of your thoughts remain intact for tracing later. Now, I know you attribute this to your fictional protagonist, Helena, in the story, but I was curious because this does sound so much like you, or it might sound so much like you. Is this a method that you actually work with? Well, it really does describe the way I took lecture notes as an undergraduate, which in some respects is foundational to all the writing I've done since particularly the prose writing, actually. And I only thought of this while writing this story. Uh, you know, it was very interesting just to do a bit of autobiographical retrace in that way. I was always an avid paper note taker. And I did, in fact, try, you know, copy down individual sentences and things verbatim from the lecture. And then I did evolve the thing that is mentioned in the story, this little sign of an arrow with a sort of lightning bolt shaft, which I would then use to indicate that this was my comment on the lecture content or whatever. And, you know, all of my notes just simply kind of followed that pattern. Sarah, I'd like to ask you what you're working on now and um, why did you choose it? I'm working on something which is a first for me, which is a sequel. Uh, the very first novel I ever wrote, The Stone Boatman, I was marketed at the time as a novel, but what it really is, is is a collection of four interlinked novellas. And I think its sequel is also likely to be a collection of four interlinked novellas. Because I think right now, probably three of them, uh, which will go back to the world and have it respond to sort of crises um, that have developed within it. So that is a project that I have shelved and come back to several times. And I think I will probably do the same a few more times and eventually it will arrive fully done. Sarah, I want to thank you for joining us today on Watershed Writers. It's a pleasure to have you back and to hear about all your projects. Thank You're so you. prolific. Thank you very much. Sarah Tolmey's Weird Fiction can be found published with Aqueduct Press and Tor.com, available at Barnes & Noble, as well as at your local independent booksellers like Wordsworth Books, The Bookshelf in Guelph, and Cambridge's Rookery Books. Look for the sequel to The Stone Boatman, The Girl and the Bird, out in a few years. Thanks very much from Watershed Writers. Thanks so much. Thanks for joining us for this episode. Watershed Writers comes to you every Sunday at 10 a.m. on Midtown Radio. And if you miss an episode or just want to listen again, you can catch up with episodes posted to SoundCloud and to our website at watershedwritersalloneword.ca. Coming up on the podcast, award-winning novelist Carrie Snyder speaks about her latest book, Francie's Got a Gun, and her love of working through friction. Memoirist and playwright Alison Fishburne will be here to talk about her one-person show, Church Boyfriends and Other Impure Thoughts, and the healing power of theater. 
Anuja Varghese's book of short stories titled Chrysalis has been shortlisted for a Governor General's Award for Literature, and that is very welcome news to us here. Congratulations to Anuja and her publisher, House of Anansi Press. We'd also like to brag just a bit that we booked an interview with Anuja long before the shortlisting announcement. So she'll, she'll be here to talk about the nomination and about writing the daring set of stories in Chrysalis. All coming up on season four of Watershed Writers. Watershed Writers is produced in partnership with the Idea Exchange and the Waterloo Public Library. In the studio, we are a small but mighty team of three. Francis Roberts Riley is the show's founder and producer. John Roscoe is our technical producer. And I'm your host, Tannis McDonald. Our theme music is Water by the Kitchener singer-songwriter, Alicia Brilla. Join us again next week to listen local and think global. Oh.